don't typically share things here, but given the gravity of this story, it's certainly something that I want to get off my chest, as I've been holding on to this for well over a year now. I currently work as a 911 dispatcher, which, as I'm sure you can guess, is far from the most chill occupation that one can have. Not only are we dealing with people in crisis, some of whom who are truly facing life and death situations, but we also bear the brunt of a system that doesn't exactly endear one to join this semi-thankless profession. You didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you. According to the powers that be, we as dispatchers are looked at as clerical staff. Basically, people that sit at front desks and simply take calls. Not as people that direct calls to the proper authorities and make sure that needy citizens get the help that they need in a proper amount of time. We're saddled with long hours due to staff shortages, mandatory overtime, a workload that makes it hard to have anything left once you get off the clock, and none of the medical or mental wellness safety nets provided to first responders, which, as I just highlighted, the government does not count us as. It is also a sensationalized profession that, in movies and on TV, looks as if we are in high-tech war rooms with monitors everywhere and every tool in the book at our fingertips. I cannot stress enough that this is far from the case. It's me, a single computer, my headset, and an emergency phone line that never seems to stop ringing. I say that to highlight the fact that there are no shortage of people in need out there on a daily and nightly regimen. While we are connected with fire, police, and emergency services, we are not the ones personally driving the ambulance or police cars. We're the ones on the phone with someone who is perhaps fighting for their lives or watching some helpless person get hurt. I can't get the police there any faster, but I for sure hear all the bloody details about those involved. I give this background information because I want you all to know that this is not a glorious occupation. I have my moments where I feel that I truly help someone by getting them the assistance they need. But those moments pale in comparison to the times where I feel helpless to aid the people that are screaming, crying, and pleading for help. This is where my story takes place. It's a typical evening in the dispatch center. I fielded maybe 10 calls so far in the night, ranging from an elderly couple that almost burned their house down by leaving wet clothes on a heater to the mom of a child that has fallen off their bunk bed and whacked their head. All in all, a relatively tame start to my shift. But that goes out the window when I get a call from a woman who is whispering into the receiver of her phone, telling me that she had been home all alone in her house, but now fears that someone has broken in and is walking around downstairs. Her voice is calm yet obviously frightened. She tells me her name, her address, and that she is now hidden in her upstairs bedroom as she is listening to heavy footsteps roam around the ground level of her home. She tells me that she was already upstairs with everything locked up for the evening, when about two or three minutes ago, she heard noise coming from her front door before what she equated to it being forced open. She quickly retreated to her room before closing the door, turning the light off, and taking refuge behind her bed. She also let me know that she has a gun with her and is well aware of how to use it. So there are a few things we do right off the bat. 
Given that this is obviously a police matter, I relay all the information that I have to units that can render aid. Female, home alone, suspected home intruder. Homeowner is armed. That is what I know. What I don't know is how far away units are and what their ETA to get to the house is. I tell her that help is on its way, as I'm trained to do, and ask her more questions to glean additional information that may assist officers arriving and to keep her calm. While this is a tactic of ours, we're also taught to keep an ear out on what is happening in the background of the calls. Can we hear any noises from the intruder? Voices. Bangs and crashes. Anything that would indicate a struggle or an escalation of the situation. At this point, I've asked her many of the things on my list. Is there any way you can safely exit the residence? No. Is there anywhere else you can retreat to? No. Have you physically seen the intruder? No. And this is when she tells me that the footsteps sound like they're beginning to get closer. Moving from downstairs to coming up the staircase. I can hear her voice tense up, rightfully so. And that's when she asks a question that would send a chill down any dispatcher's spine. If they make it into my room, can I shoot them? Not only is this a terrifying question to hear someone ask, but it puts me as a dispatcher in a very tricky spot. We are not able to give advice that would lead to the bodily harm or death of others, or potentially the caller themselves. If something happens where I direct someone to do something that leads to that, I could be held criminally liable for the act. That is where we as dispatchers often have to grapple with towing the company line, potentially protecting ourselves, versus telling someone to protect themselves at whatever cost. I have to tell the caller this. Ma'am, I cannot tell you to shoot or not to shoot. Police are on their way, though. Not directly answering this woman's dire question leaves a knot in my stomach and I'm just praying to hear sirens in the background of this call immediately. The line goes silent for about 10 seconds that honestly could have been about 10 hours at this point, before the woman says, they're right outside my door. I'm checking every resource that I have, hoping to give this woman good news, that help is at her door, that they just pulled up, anything. That's when I hear, followed by a scream that I will hear ring through my ears for the rest of my life. Ma'am? Ma'am, are you still there? The phone must have been dropped because I hear rustling and movement against the open phone line. She finally responds, but now in a panic. I shot him. I shot him. It's at this point that I can hear the sounds of police sirens getting nearer. I get an update on my end that the responding officers have arrived on the scene, and I begin to give the caller the instructions that I need to, to ensure that the officers can make entry safely. I ask her where the intruder is. Is he still a threat? If not, can she secure her firearm and wait for the officers to come and get her? But no response. All I can hear are faint sobs. Then the line clicks dead. At this juncture, I'm trained to advise the officers as best as I can, but now that they're there on the scene, 
there's not much left for me to do. I take a moment to collect myself, take a few breaths, and then put my headset back on and continue my shift. Although that call left me shaken, the next set of calls are already rolling in, and that means that I too have to keep on going. I think you can see just how much this work takes from you, shift after shift. The rest of the night comes and goes. Thankfully, no more calls such as that home invasion. But even as I clock out in the morning, I'm left wondering what the outcome was. I'll tell you now, I didn't have to wonder for very long. I show up for my next shift the following evening and am met at my station by my shift manager and a police sergeant. They ask if I wouldn't mind joining them for a minute. While they didn't clearly state that it had to do with the call the night before, I internally knew that that's all it could be about. We went to the conference room of the dispatch center, and the sergeant pretty much got right into it. You fielded a call about a potential home invasion last evening, at or around 2300 hours. We've already listened to the recording, but I'd like to ask you a few questions about this interaction. Okay. The caller. Did they indicate that they were alone in their home? Yes. Did they say if they were expecting anyone? A visitor? Anything like that? No, they did not. Did they state if they lived alone? No, they did not. She did say that she was alone, but that was it. There were a few more questions that I can't really recall, but the sergeant finished with this one. Did you happen to ask if it were possible that the intruder was somebody she knew? Could it have been a family member or a loved one? Did anyone have a key to get in? This one threw me for a loop. We as dispatchers are not typically trained to ask questions that can be answered with an opinion as opposed to fact. So my response was no. The sergeant finished taking his notes before looking back up at me and thanking me for my time. He looks at my shift manager, who I hadn't noticed until this moment, had his head down and seemed a bit shaken himself. Once the sergeant heads out, I give it a moment before I ask my manager if he knew what that was about. He looks at me, clears his throat and says, it wasn't an intruder that made it into that woman's house last night. It was her husband who works the night shift. He had gotten off much earlier than normal. Usually, when he gets home, his wife is already asleep, so he would do his best not to wake her. Last night was no different. He walked through the front door, didn't turn on any of the lights or call out to her. When he walked upstairs to go into their room to change and get into bed with her, she shot the moment that that door opened. One to the head. He didn't stand a chance. If my manager said anything else after that, I can't truly remember. It was at this point that it struck me that I was on the phone with this woman when she mistakenly ended the life of her husband. The shot, the scream, her sobs, everything replayed in my mind at that time, and it didn't stop for quite a while. I don't know what happened with that woman. I don't know if charges were ever pressed. I don't know if she was simply left to deal with this personal travesty on her own. I knew that I didn't have the capacity to follow it beyond what I learned in that conference room that day. It still lingers with me, though. 
It's still something that I think about just about every time I receive a call that starts out with, I think there's somebody in my house. I don't know if therapy would help me to deal with this. I don't know if leaving this profession would help. Because no matter what I do, I still can't reconcile that feeling of knowing that I was pretty much there when someone extinguished the life of the person that loved them most. I recently received a friend request that reminded me of this story, so I'm going to share it here. This happened after I went to university, so I had to be 18. I made an effort to make friends after I moved onto campus and ended up with a few groups to hang out with, including a new girlfriend and plenty of people from my classes that I liked well enough. There was one class before lunch where it was traditional for people to go to the cafeteria afterwards to eat in pairs or in threes. I wasn't very discerning about who I'd have lunch with because I got on fine with most people from the class and we were all trying to make an effort to be social. So when one girl, a girl named Lily, asked if I wanted to eat lunch together after class, I didn't have any reason not to go. We talked about school and that kind of thing. Nothing noteworthy, but she did ask me to get lunch with her again the next week. It pretty much became a pattern and there wasn't exactly a way to start saying no suddenly. It was fine, but it did mean I lost the chance to eat lunch with anyone else on those days. In hindsight, I suppose that was the point. One day in class, I asked someone if I could add them on social media. This happened in front of Lily. I saw her face jerk towards me from a couple of seats over. It was such a sharp reaction that it was hard to ignore, and I still remember it. By the time I got home later that day, Lily had sent me a friend request. No friends in common. Don't know how she knew my last name. I was a bit surprised, but I guess she just dug through the university's social media pages and found me through there. It gave me a bad feeling, but surely it was fine, right? She ended up messaging me a lot and commenting on anything that I posted. I told myself that she was just awkward, and we became friends if not close. I'd known worse people after all. She still always got me to go eat lunch with her after one of our shared classes. Other than that though, we rarely spent time together in person. I saw her around sometimes, but I never went out of my way to hang out with her. So it was mostly online messaging and seeing each other in group settings. Coincidentally, my girlfriend was also named Lily. This was something that clearly bothered Lily not my girlfriend, who couldn't have found it less interesting. It's a relatively common name where we're from. She occasionally hinted that she wanted my girlfriend to, quote, pick a different name, or joked about it not suiting her. She clearly didn't like my girlfriend at all, and I had an idea of why. It was a little hard to ignore at this point. Lily was starting to unsettly hint that she had a crush on me. I tried my best not to say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill address it because 
What was I going to say? I've never known what to do when a friend makes a pass at me. I was also not interested in the least. Even ignoring the weird stuff she pulled, Lily wasn't my type at all. She tended to dress and act in a way somewhere between a 50s housewife and one of those adults who is still obsessed with Disney princesses, if you can picture that. Things took an uncomfortable turn on the day of our last shared class of the year. Instead of asking me to lunch like she usually did, Lily asked if I'd go for a walk with her. Again, I didn't exactly know how to refuse, so I said all right. Our campus was bordered by a large patch of woodland. Lily led me into the woods, and the sounds of our fellow students slowly faded away. She sat down on a log, and I joined her. She started talking about how she was going to miss me over the summer. I tried placating her, but I didn't want to be there, especially because she seemed almost on the verge of tears. I think I tried to make an excuse about having plans with my girlfriend, but before I could leave, Lily chose to kiss me without warning. It was uncomfortable to say the least. I got out of there and was happy to think that I wouldn't see her for a while. I came back to university after the summer, moving into a house with my friends. Without going off topic, there were some serious issues in my friend group. A lot of petty arguing, and worse. I broke up with my girlfriend around the start of that school year as well. And basically, the whole mess made me recontextualize things with Lily, because it suddenly didn't seem as bad. That said, I didn't want to be alone with her. We mostly talked online. She was still constantly messaging me after all. One upside of everything was that I started dating a boy. Lily was not pleased to hear that news. I think she hoped to sneak in after I broke up with my girlfriend, but as I said before, that wasn't going to happen. There wasn't a big gap between my breakup and this new relationship, so she must have thought she missed her chance to be with me. This is where the story goes bad. At this time, I was fairly active on Tumblr. I occasionally talked about my life and mostly reblogged photos and stuff. I was on there one day when something odd happened. One of the blogs I followed had received an ask with some phrases I recognized. It took a second for me to register that it was taken from my about page. That made me freeze. I read the message properly. Someone was asking this completely random person to analyze a section of text from my page, asking for their opinion on the type of person who would write it. I cannot stress how messed up it was to see people talking about me like I was a character in a book that they were trying to study. The reply was basically, I don't know, sorry. But the important thing was that the question hadn't been anonymous. It linked to someone else's blog. Obviously, I wanted to know who had taken such a bizarre interest in me. As far as I knew, no one in real life, other than my boyfriend, knew about my page. Well, no prizes for guessing who was behind it. What I found was like a shrine. She was using a fake name, but I recognized Lily all over that thing. It was this cutesy pink and red page. There were a few posts about her interests, but most of the content was focused on her primary interest, me. Most of the posts were about me. There were accounts of things that I'd recently done, as well as references to things from as far back as I'd known her. It was clear she'd been keeping tabs on me, both online and off. 
gathering up every scrap of information she could about my life and hoarding it here in her collection. She talked about us eating lunch together and how special our dates had been to her, as if it was anything more than acquaintances getting food after class. She talked about the time she had forcibly kissed me in the woods, but she wrote about it as if it had been mutual. She quoted lyrics from my favorite song and talked about how she'd always be there for me, no matter who else came into my life. Lots of references to loving me, quote, just the way he is, which answered another mystery about an anonymous love letter I'd received earlier that year with the same wording. It got worse, though. There were a lot of posts about my boyfriend as well. Those weren't so nice. They got vicious, talking about how he didn't deserve me. He didn't know what he had. If she was with me, she'd be jealous of anyone else who came near me. So my boyfriend not being a jealous person meant that he didn't love me. It was angry and hateful. I didn't like to think about the sort of person who could write so obsessively about being fixated on me. One thing that didn't make sense at first was that the blog also made plenty of references to Lily's best friend, Stephen. She had never mentioned this person to me. Her posts talked a lot about Stephen and how great a friend he was and how much fun they had together, how he looked out for her, etc. I was trying to work out whether this was an online friend when one specific post made it all click. She had posted a photo and captioned it with, Stephen sent this to me. He knew I would like it, and I love it, or something like that. The problem was, the photo was taken from my own page. I hadn't sent it to her. She took it from my page and then claimed this fictional best friend of hers shared it with her, because in her head, it seems as if she had split me into two people. In our messed up fantasy life, I was both the perfect best friend who was always looking out for her, and her soulmate who was bound to end up with her, when I finally got over my boyfriend and all the other, quote, easy girls that I hung out with that she made dozens of posts complaining about. Who was she complaining to? Oh, Lily had an audience. She asked open questions about me and her relationship with me and got messages back from her followers, people who took what she said at face value. I saw a bunch of random people agreeing with this stalker that my boyfriend didn't deserve me and we were bound to break up soon so I could be with Lily, the person that I was clearly supposed to be with. She had this fake fan fiction version of my life up for anyone to share their opinion on, and she'd made herself out to be the hero of it all. I went maybe a month back into this page's history. I didn't look at everything that was there. It was just too much. So I'm not sure how long this had been going on for. I sent Lily a message confronting her about the blog. She said nothing, and I cannot stress how weird it was to have found pages and pages dedicated to me, with her talking about how she was in love with me and would make sure we ended up together, slamming my boyfriend, and building this fantasy life with two different versions of me in it that she clearly believed to be real, then just acting like it hadn't happened. She said nothing. She didn't address it. She just changed the subject, even after I pushed, and it was like she hadn't even registered what I had said. I'd never seen anything else like it. She ultimately deleted the page, of course, or at least changed the name and hid it so I never found it again. But it wasn't the end. 
I wasn't going to hang out with her anymore, but we were still in classes together and she had started to actually scare me with what she might do next. I'm kind of a paranoid person, so knowing that someone was obsessively keeping track of me for who knows how long absolutely freaked me out. The next thing she pulled was trying to seduce my boyfriend. It was an absolutely useless attempt that only made him uncomfortable. He told me about it right away. What was her plan there? Did she hope to tell me he cheated and wait for me to break up with him? Why would I want her after that? When that didn't work out for her, she tried hitting on three of my other friends, but none of them took the bait. She ended up dating one of my former housemates for a while, but made sure to send me messages while they were together, letting me know she'd rather be with me. Uh, no thanks. Lily made sure to stay in my life the whole time I was at university. There was a time when I tried to pull away from her, and she ended up starting numerous rumors about me and damaging a career opportunity I'd put a lot of work into. I don't know what else she did behind my back, but it made me realize it was safer to let her think she was part of my life, all the while ignoring her, rather than doing something that would cause her to get angry. After I graduated, Lily still wanted to spend time together, but I knew I didn't have to now. I made excuses about work and barely talked to her after that point. I almost entirely stopped posting on social media that I knew she knew about. Of course, she didn't give up that easily. She tried to start conversations, asked me to meet up with her, attempts that I usually ignored. I didn't like to think that she was still tracking me online, but she probably was. I don't know how, but she'd occasionally reference things I mentioned online somewhere, somewhere she shouldn't have known about. The last time we had a real conversation, she sent me a message out of nowhere. We hadn't spoken at all in months, and we hadn't talked about anything serious in much longer than that. Thinking about that conversation still makes my skin crawl, but I'll summarize here what happened. At first, she asked me some questions about how long I had known I was queer. I told her some basic stuff, the kind of thing I tell anyone who asked. Then she changed the subject. She started talking about how would I feel about her if she was a boy about wanting to be a boy, for me. The messages quickly became based in fetish. She went into plenty of detail about fantasies she had for the two of us. Again, we were not friends at this point. We'd never been especially close, at least not from my perspective, and we had barely spoken for years now. I can't imagine sending messages like that to even a close friend, let alone someone who barely knows you. I tried telling her not to pull this crap with me, but that's when she decided to change tactics. She sent photos of herself, followed by a bunch of messages, maybe four or five in a single minute, way too fast for me to reply before the next one arrived, basically quoting what I had told her about myself and my past earlier. She was telling me these things as if they had happened to her. She was role-playing as me. The worst part was that she seemed to believe that it was all real, that those things actually happened to her, even when she was quoting me word for word. Things I told her only hours before were now her life. It was like she was trying to absorb my history, to take it over, to make my life part of her. Yeah, I didn't talk to her again after that, 
I ignored all future attempts she made to talk to me, and I eventually silently deleted her from the inactive social media, which was her only real way of contacting me. I really thought she might finally move on. When, a few days ago, she sent me a friend request. It's still sitting there unanswered because I know if I delete it, she'll only send another one. At this point, Lily and I met nearly 12 years ago. This story is just the highlights, and even then, it's only the stuff that I know about for sure. A lot happened behind my back. I know it did. So, girl who spent a dozen years obsessing over me, fetishizing me, stalking me, and harassing me. Let's not meet again. The fantasy life you built for the two of us in your head is the only place you'll be seeing me anytime soon. Remembering back to high school, there was this guy that was really funny, pretty popular, and that almost everyone got along with. He didn't bully anyone, not that I can recall of, and it was impossible to not laugh when he was around. He was a genuinely goofy guy, the class clown type. He would say hi to me, try to strike up conversation, and even compliment me. Being an awkward teenage girl in an extremely cringeworthy emo phase, I was flattered. I wasn't used to getting attention like that, so it was nice to have a guy around the school that would randomly say, you look really cute today. I wasn't interested in him romantically at all though. He was more of just a funny acquaintance that made me smile every once in a while. He added me on Facebook, like he did with almost all the other kids in his grade, and the grade below his, which happened to be mine. After a while, he asked me if I wanted to hang out with him after school. I contemplated it, but there was a faint voice in the back of my head saying it probably wasn't a good idea. Nothing really screaming danger though, just something in my gut telling me to be wary. I never took him up on his offers, even if other people would be around. He also asked my best friend to hang out after school, but she never accepted either, and we would talk about how weird it was that he would ask both of us separately to hang out with him after school, since we didn't quite fit the type of girls that he was known to date. We both agreed that we just really would rather not. Time passed, life went on, and I completely forgot about the guy. Until about a week ago, when one of my friends shared an article about a bar in the next town over that had come under scrutiny for supposedly aiding predators who had hunted there, or something to that effect. I can't remember exactly what the article said because I was more focused on something else in the piece. That guy I went to high school with was in prison for two women. And that bar was indeed his hunting ground. Word around my hometown is that they weren't his only two victims. Just the only two that got justice. I left the article pinned down below. Just in case anybody thinks that I'm making this up because I definitely am not.